All right, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 today, friends. Go ahead and open up your Bibles there. We want to get right into it. We've got a lot of verses to uh, capture today in our hearts and our minds to put to good use. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 9. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Our guys would love to bring those to you so you have the Word of God before you. In our study of the last several chapters, we've seen Paul directly challenge or correct by his apostolic authority several of the Corinthians' theological beliefs, all of which are represented by these sayings or these slogans that Paul quotes from a previous letter that we don't have and then addresses by way of persuasive arguments. If Paul can change the minds of the Corinthians, he can change how they act. And the church of God at Corinth might increase in holiness and faith. So I want us to understand that this task that the Apostle Paul has set out to accomplish is not a simple job. To attempt to persuade someone to believe differently than they have already believed is not easy. And it's almost always met with resistance, or even at sometimes it's met with hostility. The Apostle Paul is trying to refine their minds. He's trying to, to challenge what they formerly held to be true. And this is not an easy task. How many of us, think back a little bit, how many of us were totally put off when California passed another law and the grocery stores in California started charging us for the bags that we used to bag our groceries with? How much of a radical shift was that, right? I've never had to pay for bags in my life and now suddenly I got a 10 cents for every bag that I use here? You mean I got to remember to bring my own bags? How many of you guys slap your head every time you, you get out of the car and you remember that you didn't bring your bags with you to the grocery store? Who's going to remember to do that, right? So people were upset for, for months and months. Some people are still upset, I can see by the hands that were raised today. And that is grocery bags, people. That's a matter of pennies, right? That's a small change. Imagine how much your elders had to labor and pray over bigger changes in the church, like our recent efforts to help us uh, see the, the sacrament of communion in a new light, or our church's desire to get us all together into one place, and so we've changed the schedule, which to many people, church schedule, Sunday morning, is a holy thing. You don't ever mess with that, right? You don't ever tinker with that. It's almost too hard to imagine trying to shift the way people think about some of these things that are, that are so sacred to them. Paul anticipates this, and he addresses their opposition, specifically on the topic of whether people who serve in the church should get paid for it. He's going to refine the way they think about this. He begins by reminding the Corinthians of the legitimacy of his own personal ministry, especially in light of his history with them, thinking not only of himself, though, but also of others who pour their lives into the gospel ministry. Paul then explains why it's reasonable and acceptable for elders to receive financial compensation for their service to the Lord and to His church. And above all, then, he goes on to reinforce the abiding principle that all of our freedoms and preferences need to be secondary. They need to be secondary to our foundational commitment to the spread of the gospel that has saved us. And so that, that's what Paul the Apostle is going to try to accomplish in this, these 14 verses we're going to look at today. So let me read these 14 verses, and then we'll begin to break it down bit by bit. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, if you've got your Bibles, hopefully they're open to that passage of Scripture. We're going to read 1 through 14 this morning. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it, is it, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, to establish a basis for his challenge to the Corinthians, Paul defends his, his apostleship first. In verse 3, we see evidence of this. He says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Read through the letters of Paul, and you will notice that he is pretty consistently having to defend his character and his calling. People love ad hominem attacks. You know what that is? That means that if you're against somebody, rather than really deal with the issue, you just attack their character and make them look like a bad guy, and then people won't listen to what they have to say. That's pretty much all of American politics nowadays, right? So Paul is, is diligent to defend himself when he writes to these churches to show that his apostleship is legitimate and real. We've seen in chapter one, and in chapter three, that there's a tribalism in the Corinthian church that's caused division among the people there. Many of the believers were identifying themselves under one particular leader or another and acting disrespectfully towards other faithful servants of the gospel and the people who preferred them. Some of them were not fond of Paul's positions and personality. He's under examination and critique in several different areas. In, in 1 verse 1, 1 verse 12, 4, 1 through 5, 4, 8 through 13, there's a number of places in the, the Corinthian letter where he acknowledges that there are people who are against him. And so in order to maintain his assertive position, he addresses some of this grumbling. He does so with a rapid-fire series of rhetorical questions that are intended to make those who were hostile towards him really think through their position. And so here's the first of these. He says, am I not free? And of course, a rhetorical question of this nature, the answer is kind of a given, right? Yeah, of course you're free. Am I not free? The Corinthians had made a big deal about their personal rights and freedoms. Paul has worked to temper that a bit already in the first eight cha chapters of this letter, reminding them that they may have a great bit of latitude under Christ, but being under the law of love, they still need to be very careful not to exercise their freedoms in a way that could damage the conscience of another believer. His question to open chapter 9, then, is very reasonable. Okay, you've got your rights, you've got your freedoms, but don't I also have freedoms? I have witnessed people in the church myself 
treat their pastors as if those pastors are under the beck and call of those local believers who support the minister with their tithes and offerings 24 hours a day. You can't go away for a weekend because I tithe and I expect you to be here. I'm getting my money's worth from you, pastor. You were bought at a price and now you belong to us. I've, had, I've experienced congregations where the attitude was maybe not literally that bad, but very similar to that. Ironically, it is every believer who's been bought at a price and not by any human means. It costs us a lot more than a tithe. We Christians are owned by the Lord because He has bought us with His precious blood on the cross. So we should not treat each other as if uh, we own one another. Despite the incredible price that God has paid to make us His own, He does not treat us like slaves. He treats us like His own children. He nurtures us. He cares for us. He is considerate towards us. That does not, however, change the fact that we belong heart, mind, and soul to Yahweh our God. So there's a contradiction of sorts that needs to be confronted here. The people of Corinth were judging the apostles and the other teachers of the gospel by a different set of standards than they were judging themselves. They considered themselves very, very free, but they had all these heavy expectations on their leaders. But isn't every believer entitled to the blessings that are ours as members of the new covenant? Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Aren't those true of all Christians who have called upon the name of Jesus? An apostle, an elder, a missionary is no less a believer than any other Christian. Every pastor you're ever going to work under is in need of forgiveness. Every pastor who walks up into the pulpit to preach the word of you is in need of that same word himself. Every pastor, every missionary has to depend on the same Holy Spirit that you must depend upon if you want to do any kind of eternal good. Every pastor is in need of correction when they err. And every pastor is set free by the same redeeming power of grace that you are. And they are no less entitled to the gifts that a child of God receives by His grace. Of course, Paul is free. He is in Christ, isn't he? The fact that he has been called to full-time ministry does not negate that or somehow make him subject to a different random set of restrictions and expectations that these Corinthians seem to want to put upon him. This is an important point, and we will see him expand on this train of thought a little further into the argument. His second rhetorical question is this, am I not an apostle? Am I not an apostle? The answer to that should also be a resounding and, and clear yes, you are. He goes on to say, have I not seen Jesus my Lord? This is not another rhetorical question on its own. It's actually a compliment to the second question. He's seen Jesus in the flesh, resurrected with his own eyes. And it is this personal kind of experience with the resurrected Lord that was uniquely the experience of every apostle. We are all disciples of Christ, but we're not apostles properly because we've not seen the risen Lord in the flesh with our own eyes. Men such as Paul had seen the risen Lord. And so God had commissioned them to be testifiers to the, the truth that his prophecy, that if you tear down this building in three days, I will raise it up again, which was a reference to his own physical body, had come true, that he had called his shot and risen from the grave. Though Paul was commissioned in a way that was unique from what the 12 disciples experienced, he didn't walk through three years of training like Peter and James and other James and Bartholomew and Andrew and these guys. He didn't walk the same way they did, but make no mistake about it. Christ interrupted Paul's life 
he showed himself personally to Paul and he commissioned him to gospel work. His apostleship was authentic. And so Paul has a legitimate right to that office. Paul was commissioned directly by God. That doesn't make him perfect. Nor does it mean that these Corinthians should receive every argument that Paul ever gives without any kind of pushback or careful thinking. But it does make it very important for the people of Corinth to take Paul's ministry seriously among them and to reason through what he writes as he challenges a number of their current doctrinal stances. Even though they might not want to hear what he has to say, they owe it to him as an apostle to think through these things carefully and prayerfully. The life of an apostle was dangerous. It was extremely difficult. No one would subject themselves to the kind of scrutinies and hardships that Paul and the other apostles had to endure so frequently unless they were serious about their calling and unless the seed of the gospel was the most important message that they could possibly deliver. The sacrifices he and other apostles were making should illustrate to the Corinthians how much they cared for the people of God and should insulate the apostles to a degree from petty criticisms that don't really matter. His third rhetorical question, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? Now Paul makes it a little bit more personal here in a good way. Paul's reminding the Corinthians that he has not acted as some temporary management employee to them. No, he was personally instrumental in their formative discipleship and has been used by God in significant ways to teach them and prepare them and nurture them towards fruitful service in the Lord. And here is the fruit. He has preached the gospel to them. He has raised them up carefully in the true doctrines of the faith that Jesus opened his eyes to on the road to Damascus. He had trained and appointed elders to continue shepherding them. He had helped them mature and bear their own fruit for the glory of Christ, holy and pleasing to God. And now they are a viable Christian church. This is the evidence of Paul's apostleship. And so he declares in the second verse, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. It's an interesting choice of words there, isn't it? Think back to the Old Covenant for a minute, friends. In the Old Testament, we read how Israel was given instructions about how they might identify a person who claimed to be a prophet of God, but was in fact not. To claim to speak, thus saith the Lord, to say what God says, is one of the most serious claims a person could make on this planet. So in the Old Testament, they were warned, listen, there will be people who claim to speak in the name of the Lord, but who do not. Here's how you tell the difference. The proof was in the prophecy and in whether it came to pass. If a man spoke, thus saith the Lord, and what he said happened, then he was truly a prophet of God. If he said, thus saith the Lord, and it didn't come to pass, those were false prophets. Those were not a blessing to the people of God. They were wolves. They are to devour. They were deceivers. And they were to be put to death under the Old Testament law. And so, these Corinthians, in, in a similar way, these, you know, we don't have uh, prophets in the church today the same way we had them in the Old Testament who are giving us new revelation. We have the Word of God, which is sufficient in every way. The work of an apostle was slightly different than that of a prophet, but here Paul is indicating that the proof 
of his personal calling, the seal of it was the Corinthians themselves. They were alive in Christ. They had turned from their sins. They were bearing fruit, eternally valuable fruit. They needed to bear more, but their lives were not inconsequential to the gospel. God had used the apostle and his companions to build a community of believers there in Corinth. And they were who they were in part because of the work that God had accomplished through Paul. So didn't these brothers and sisters in Corinth have every reason to trust him, to listen to what he had to say, to consider his correction, even if it was contrary to what they naturally wanted to believe? And then starting in verse 4, the argument begins to broaden a little bit as Paul speaks not only of his own particular impact on the Corinthians, but on behalf of many other leaders in the church as well. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Seems like a simple question. Don't people have the right to eat and drink? The word in the Greek here for right is exousian. It has to do with the privileges and freedoms that an individual possesses. Now, this is one of the very rare occasions in the New Testament where Paul's actually going to emphasize the rights of a believer. If you're familiar with much, much, much of what Paul has written, typically he's more prone to preach our status as Christians as bond saves to Christ, that we owe him our everything, that we are set free from sin, and that's all the freedom we really need. While man is not entitled to as much freedom as he often believes himself to be, Paul doesn't deny that there are certain rights that the believer should be privy to, simply because they are human beings made in the image of God. So does everyone have the right to eat and drink? They do. But eating and drinking doesn't come for free, does it? I want to make two observations about what is being brought up here by Paul. First of all, he's talking about eating and drinking. He's not saying every Christian has the right to whatever level of luxury he wants to have. Paul wasn't desiring or arguing for the lap of luxury here. He's simply asking these Corinthians, don't we have the right to provide for our basic needs? But I also want to point out that this is not a bid to some kind of socialism. This is not a verse that you should twist around and make it seem as though a universal income is a biblical idea. Rather, he's appealing to the actual labor that he may do in order to meet his own needs. Since the answer is yes, every human being has the right to eat and to drink, it follows that Paul should be able to make a case that if preaching the gospel is their most important work, shouldn't ministers expect that their labors are worth enough that they might be paid to the degree that they can support such basic needs and rights in their own lives. With all that elders and apostles need to accomplish, when would they be expected to keep another job? Now, it is possible to pastor a church and hold down another job. I've done it myself. I've known many other ministers currently right now who are doing that very same thing. It's actually a lot more common in California than you would think it is. I have great respect for those who press themselves and take on that extra burden of trying to work outside of the church while also doing the important and active ministry of one called to shepherd the flock. Not everyone could hold down both responsibilities, and it would not be ideal for them to do so even if they physically could. It would be better for those individuals to be able to pour their hearts, minds, souls into the preaching of this good gospel which exalts God, which is exemplary of their calling. So the next question seems to indicate that there were those who were hindering not only the apostles' right to work for a living, but other basic freedoms as well. He says, do we not have the right to take a believing wife? 
That's a little different than money, right? Remember, this argument started with a broad appeal to the freedoms that Paul should expect to have as an apostle and as a born-again believer. And that encompasses far much more than just financial compensation. His reference is here to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. The brothers of Jesus, one of which was James. Others apparently had become disciples of Christ after his resurrection. And he also references other unnamed apostles who were apparently married. And this sheds light on the conflict. The Corinthians are not consistent in the expectations that they place on their leaders, expecting much from some and less from others. And there's a bias here. And so he wants them to be consistent. Now, historically, we've seen how certain traditions have insisted that their clergy be committed to celibacy for life. This is an unnecessary and in many ways a foolish requirement, given that the Bible clearly does not insist upon ministers being celibate. And 1 Corinthians has already showed us how a godly marriage can be a strong defense against the temptations of sexual immorality. When we love our wife the way God calls us to love a wife in a covenant arrangement, it can guard us against looking to those fulfillments outside of the covenant of marriage. So Paul is shrugging off the unbiblical expectations that some of these Corinthians might be trying to force upon Paul and the other church leaders. Expectations that might be very well imported from their life before Christ. Remember, these Corinthians, many of them came to Jesus not from a Jewish background, but from a secular pagan background. And so many of them had very varying degrees of understanding about what marriage should be like or about how professional teachers should be compensated or not be compensated. So Paul has to sift through some of these things as he addresses their biases and their inconsistencies. The summation of these questions. Paul argues that those who serve dutifully in the church of God should be able to enjoy the same freedoms and rights as those who are laymen. And that these basic rights and freedoms, including the right to a, a livable wage, the right to marriage, should be the claim of every apostle or missionary or elder without bias. The most practical application that Paul intends to draw from this principle becomes clear in the next several verses. As the apostle makes a multi-layered argument that professional ministers should be compensated for their work. Now, why is there a need for this defense, we might ask? Well, what's the big idea? We might think that there's need for the defense of paying ministers because perhaps some in Corinth have taken advantage of the opportunity to benefit and profit from the church and have exploited their advantage as a paid shepherd over the people. We might think that way because we see that in our culture all the time, don't we? People who are filling pulpits, not because on their minds every day, throughout the day, is the glory of Jesus. Not because they have a heart desire <clears throat> to help others to love Christ with everything that they've got, but because they know that when you get into a pulpit, people pay attention. And when you get into a pulpit, your personality can shine. And when you get into the pulpit, you can persuade. And sometimes you can actually persuade people to give more and more money than they would normally give. So we have experienced it in our culture, haven't we? Where there are some people who, in the name of spreading the gospel, have really just tried to fortify themselves as a national personality. And they've filled their pockets with the offerings that are supposed to go to ministry. So maybe that's what's in our minds when we think about the defense, but it might be actually a little bit different in Paul's perspective. 
<clears throat> there is evidence that there was some greed at that time. 2 Corinthians 2.17 says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. In other words, in the second letter of the Corinthians, Paul is acknowledging that some people are just in it for the money. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 5 through 10, talks about how some ministers are engaged in a ministry of flattery. They try to tell people what they want to hear with a pretext of greed. So this was going on at the time. Though some sought leadership positions for those wrong reasons, it is not evident that Paul <clears throat> has in any way exploited his post for personal gain or that he's simply using the ministry as a source of profit. The actual problem is much more likely as follows. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that some of the Gentile Christians probably imported some of their worldview perspectives that they held before Christ into their current worldview now that they're following Christ. And in the culture of Rome, philosophers were a big deal. To be a wise man, to be a guru, had something interesting to say, made you a celebrity of sorts. And there were various ideas about whether a good philosopher should be doing it simply for the love of the wisdom that they were giving or whether they should be paid for it. Given the hustle and the bustle of Corinth and the fact that there was so much money going through that, that city, which was a critical port city where so much con commerce funneled through, it's very likely that those who, uh, who were not Christians, who were into the philosophers and, and looked to those wise gurus around the region, probably thought that if you had something worth saying, you should be getting paid for it. And then if you weren't getting paid, then it probably meant that your philosophy was Bush League, that it was experimental, that it wasn't worth the time. Let me give you a little tip. If you've ever got something you want to get rid of in your, in your neighborhood, maybe you got a piece of furniture and doesn't fit in your house anymore, or you've replaced it with something better, don't put it out in front of your house with a sign that says free on it, because nobody will take it. They'll figure nobody wants it. It's not worth anything. Put it out in front of your house with a sign that says $20 on it, and then someone will steal it. <laughs> someone will take it when you're not looking because they think it has value, right? <laughs> Philosophy was big to the Romans, and if a person wasn't paid for the wisdom they had to give, that wisdom's value was often considered questionable. So with that in mind, some leaders, probably Peter, probably Apollos among them, who had a, a strong ministry base in Corinth, people liked their teaching, were willing to receive financial support as they focused on the work of ministry without distraction. They were what we would call professional ministers. Paul and Barnabas, on the other hand, were two exceptions to this practice. Paul and Barnabas were concerned that taking a salary from the places where they ministered from the Corinthians and then from the Thessalonians before them may have put their motives in question. Maybe that would make it seem as though they were just in it for the money. So they had made the personal decision to not take a personal salary. Instead, they worked hard for the gospel, but they also put an extra strain upon themselves by working hard in a secular job so that they could pay for their own ministry and not be a burden to the people they were working with. The history of the Thessalonians is actually really unique and interesting, too. They were at Thessalonica before they were at Corinth. And do you remember what was a problem at Thessalonica? At Thessalonica, there was the problem of people who were in the church who grabbed onto this teaching that Jesus was coming back soon. And so they neglected to work. They gave up their jobs. They just said, we're just going to worship. We're going to praise. We're going to sit around until the Lord comes back. And when they needed food, they just put a hand out 
And the other Christians who were diligent to work would give them food, but it became a strain. It became divisive among them. So there was a problem with laziness in the Thessalonian church. So doesn't it make sense that Paul and Barnabas, having passed through there, having experienced that, would be very careful not to seem as though they were freeloaders to people? Do you think that might have had an impact on the way that they made this decision that even though it was perfectly legitimate for them to take a salary, that they decided that they would not? Unfortunately, that had in some ways backfired with some in Corinth because the Corinthians then started to take their ministry as something little because it wasn't worth their money. This created a problem that needed to be explained. Perhaps some think of Paul as second rate because he won't be paid for his ministry. It seems likely that that's the case. So Paul here is going to justify Barnabas and himself, but he's careful that in doing so, he does not make those ministers like Apollos or Peter who are taking a salary seem like they are in any way exploiting the church to do so. So Paul's walking this very, very thin line here between these two camps. The backbone of the argument is a general principle Paul's driving towards, and it's this. It's a biblical principle that we've heard before in other places. A workman is worthy of his wages. What that means, friends, is that hard work should come with a proportionally fair reward for that work. Paul sticks with the rhetorical question format as he drives through this, as he illustrates the principle, with three real-world examples, things that people would understand from experience. He says, think about a soldier, right? What soldier goes to war at his own expense? There's great risk in fighting battles. There's great risk from standing in between justice and those who would break it. And so he says, listen, think about a soldier. You're not going to expect a soldier to sign up and to go out into the field and to do battle and not be compensated for that. They're going to be paid for their work or that army is going to fall apart at the first sign of, of struggle. What about a farmer? A farmer who plants in the field is, of course, just reasonably going to eat some of the produce that he takes in. He's not going to see all that food pass right by him and go to the market while he and his family starves. They've made an investment in this land and in this soil. They're going to care for the thing that comes out of it, but they're also going to eat some of it. They're going to use some of that for themselves. Well, what about a shepherd? A shepherd tends to the flock, right? He's taking care of these goats and these sheep. Of course, he's going to take advantage of some of the milk that those animals have to give because he's caring for them. He's going to allow those animals and their, their fruit to care for him, which begs the, tr the question, friends. If these things are true, and they are. Shouldn't someone who labors in the proper teaching of God's word and the right discipleship of God's sons and daughters be rightfully able to draw a practical benefit from that service? Don't we have the right to eat or drink? Well, then think about all this labor we're doing among you. Doesn't it make sense that we should be supported as we help you with these very spiritual matters? Common sense indicates yes. But Paul, of all people, understands that anecdotal evidence is not the strongest support of any position. And so he also appeals here to the Word of God. And I love this about the Apostle Paul. This is one of the, the great wonders, I think, of, of going through the New Testament and reading Paul's uh, instruction to the church is that he always is rooting it in what the, the Lord had brought to us through the prophets and the shadows and types of the Old Testament that came before He's constantly helping us to understand that the true standard is not Paul, even though his words would then become Scripture because God inspired them, but the true standard is the fact that God is behind the words. And so Paul says, don't take my personal word for it. Let's look at the law of God. Before we think too specifically 
about the law that Paul points to, which is found in Deuteronomy 25.4, we should probably clear something up. We, as the New Testament church, are no, under, no longer under the law, are we? We are not. Romans 6 explains this to us. Galatians 5.18 tells us that we are no longer under the law of Moses. But that does not mean that we are lawless. We are not under the law, but we are not lawless, friends. The law of God is not of zero importance to us. In fact, it should be beautiful to us. It should be critical to the way that we walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. We should look to it for wisdom. We should look to it for guidance and direction. The law is not there to redeem. It originally came to us, what? To condemn. The law was given to us through Moses as a way of showing us how impossible it would be for us to attain to righteousness on our own efforts. It was never a means of washing our sin away. It was never a holy ladder that we were to climb rung by rung, trying to ascend into heaven and become more righteous ourselves. It was a means of showing us our absolute need for Christ, that the only means that we can leave the sinful, broken state that we're in and be in the presence of God without judgment is through the righteous blood of Christ washing our sins away because only Christ perfectly upholds and fulfills the law. But the law did more than just condemn us. It also governed the everyday lives of the covenant people, helped them to know how to live, and it gave us a window into the character of God because the laws of God display to us what kind of a God we serve. So there's much wisdom in looking to the Old Testament law for wisdom and direction. It is helpful to separate the law into three categories. I'm talking about the Old Testament law here particularly. It is useful to see them as moral laws. That would be primarily the great commandments. Love the Lord your God more than anything else. Love your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule, in other words, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The Ten Commandments of God first four of which are about loving him, the, second, or the last six of which are about loving our neighbor. This would be called the moral law. It is unique from the other laws in that it is universal forever. This is a pure expression of the character and nature of the Lord God. The second category of law that we might think of is sometimes called the judicial law and sometimes called the civil law. Those are the same things. And these are laws that regard the practical governments of the theocracy of Israel. What is a theocracy? A theocracy is a government, a literal nation on earth that is governed directly by God. What a blessing it would have been to be under the direct governance of God through the kings, through the priests, God directing the nation of Israel, and giving them what they need. So the judicial or the civil law helped them to keep order and peace in their borders. It taught them how to specifically live out the moral law in areas of practical everyday life. Then we have the ceremonial law. Ceremonial law were commandments that governed the nation of Israel's means of worshiping God. Now these acted as shadows and types that pointed forward to the cross. Do we worship Yahweh exactly the same way as those saints in the Old Testament worshiped Yahweh? We do not. Because I don't hear any sheep out there today that you brought for sacrifice. I don't, I don't see you bringing... Uh, uh, Omers of wheat to deliver, right? We don't give these offerings anymore because they all pointed forward to something superior. They had a very important meaning in their time. They were useful. They were good for the nation of Israel. 
But those ceremonial laws pointed forward to the sacrifice of Jesus. And now that he has given his life as the one true sacrifice, we don't need a lot of what was given to us in shadows and types in the Old Testament. We have the fulfillment of them in Jesus and his person, his work, and his resurrection. So all of God's laws, to be clear here, to some degree are moral, aren't they? There's nothing in the ceremonial law that God told the people to do that was amoral. There's nothing in the civil or the judicial law that God told his people to be that had no moral basis to it. All of God's law is some degree moral law. So it makes it somewhat difficult sometimes to separate these things out into categories. He never commands us to do what is wicked. His law always works for good. But it's not always 100% clear which category a law falls into. So we must not be too dogmatic about the categories, though the categories do help our understanding. Now with the coming of the new covenant, friends, Israel is no longer properly a national people. Okay, Our covenant is broader than that. There are people in every nation in the world today that call upon the name of the Lord and reside under that covenant of God because they are in Christ. Praise God to that. And we pray that that will continue to resonate throughout the world as the gospel spreads further and further into every nation, to every tribe and tongue. Now, because of this change, the laws that belong rightfully to the judicial and the ceremonial categories of law are no longer binding over the new covenant people. That doesn't mean they're useless, but they are no longer binding. The form of those laws, being particular to the, nas- the nation of Israel, do not translate explicitly to life in the new co- covenant, though the moral principles behind them are still relevant and remain. So let me read to you from William Perkins, who is a, a prominent uh, Puritan, 1596, in his, his Discourse of Conscience. He writes, Therefore, the judicial laws of Moses, according to the substance and scope thereof, must be distinguished, in which, represent, in which respects they are of two sorts. Some of them are laws of particular equity, some of common equity. Laws of particular equity, Particular equity are such as prescribe justice according to the particular state and condition of the Jews' commonwealth and to the circumstances there of time, place, persons, things, and actions. So then he goes on to talk about how some are of common equity and are not particular to the nation of Israel, but apply to us today. So all of the Old Testament laws have a moral compass behind them, but some are in substance unique to the covenant people of their time. When you read in the Old Testament that the Jews were only to wear clothing made of one kind of cloth, bless you, they were not to make clothing out of two different types of fabric. That was particular to that time. When you read about their dietary restrictions that was supposed to set them off as very unique in the public sphere, that was specific to their time. We know because it's been replaced, right? The New Covenant tells us that we can eat of anything. It's all clean now. The sacrificial prescriptions for worship, that was particular to their time. It's been set away now because Christ has come and replaced all of that. The, the laws regarding how a brother who, who, who has a brother who's, who dies before he can bear children and then he must take his, his brother's wife and try to bear children through that woman, that's all gone, right? We don't do that anymore. That was particular to Israel. Laws about which tribe gets which portion of the land, etc. You see that there are many laws that cannot be ported over to our day today. Now, that doesn't mean there's nothing moral about them, and it doesn't mean we should ignore them, but they aren't things that we should try to force onto the structure of what we're doing in the New Covenant. The instruction of the New 
Testament guides our use of the Old Testament law. The New Testament negates or erases some particular laws or replaces them with something better suited in the life of the New Covenant. But looking to the moral fabric of the law, we can still benefit from what that law contains. Even the civil and ceremonial laws can speak in some ways to our wisdom. So one example of judicial or civil law is Deuteronomy 25, I believe it's verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is tre treading out the grain. What is this describing to us here? It means that a beast of burden is put to heavy labor. A yoke is put across its shoulders. There's a sort of harness that ties into that beast so that its muscles can pull forward a very heavy plow so that great work can be done in preparing a field for seed or for reaping a harvest in a field that is ready to produce it. The owner of the field in this illustration is warning against somebody being so greedy regarding the fruit of their labor, so desirous to have every bit of grain and a profit from it, that they muzzle the creature that is doing this difficult labor. To be certain, a muzzle was not a necessary component of a yoke. You could be yoked as a beast and do good work without a muzzle on your mouth. A muzzle would close the mouth of that animal, keeping them from eating anything as they went along plowing the fields and getting uh, the harvest ready. So an ox that is so restrained would have a yoke upon its shoulder, is doing tremendously hard work, and yet must look as this good food passes by it every step of the way because this muzzle is keeping it from enjoying and eating any of the fruit of its labors. This is akin to torture, and it reveals the cruel and selfish heart of the stingy farmer. Now, in some ways, friends, it is interesting that a law like this even finds its way into Deuteronomy. Are oxen a part of the Mosaic Covenant? Surely they are not. Israel is part and parcel to the covenant of Moses, along with the Lord God himself. But Israelites owned oxen. And the way they treated those oxen could reveal something about the heart. Is it for oxen? We read in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If the moral law matters to us, then we should love our neighbor. We should care for the needs of others. And that means we should want what is right and fair for them. This principle illustrated in the command not to muzzle an ox while it labors in the field should open our eyes to the fact that a minister, an apostle, or an elder, or a missionary is in some ways doing a great labor for the Lord and should not be restrained from reaping some of the benefits of that labor. And this is a go-to argument for Paul. He draws the same evidence in 1 Timothy 5.18 when he's instructing an elder on the matter. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the labor deserves his wages. So this is not isolated to 1 Corinthians 9 here. Paul does not hesitate to use this reasoning to bolster his defense of ministers who are paid to care for the flock of God. Verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it not too much if we reap material things? What is more important, friends? What is spiritual or what is material? We live in a world where we have to ask ourselves that question every day. 
because it seems as though people resoundingly with their actions declare material things are more important, right? Their priorities are on work. Their priorities are on luxury. Their priorities are on entertainment and the things that make them happy. But friends, we are cut from a different cloth if we are in Christ. Spiritual things should be more important to us. We should care more about the word of God than we do about a few dollars. To deny a minister the proper compensation for his labors is to ignore the principles laid out for us by the moral law. It should be our joy to make those who labor for the Lord well taken care of. We should look out for their needs and make sure that they're not neglected. Now, having gone to great lengths to show the legitimacy of professional ministry, the passage seems to take a strange turn at verse 12. Look at it again. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Who is he seeing? He's speaking of there when he says we. He's speaking of at least himself and Barnabas. And there might be other ministers who have decided not to be a burden on the congregation that they are serving. And instead, they have put it upon themselves to labor mightily in the, in the gospel while at the same time laboring, laboring mightily in a field like tent making or some other occupation that can bring in money to support them. Paul's argument is interrupted by an extreme exception to this rule. He and Barnabas forego their rights in order to remove any hindrance from the gospel being spread, and we should be willing to do the same. Now, this part is sometimes lost on the reader. As important as it is to recognize that men who labor for the gospel are doing a faithful work, a work worthy of compensation, even that undeniable truth must come completely under the subordination of the work itself. For any faithful minister, the end goal is not to make a living, but to see the spiritually dead experience spiritual life through Christ. The goal is faithfulness to the calling to which they have been called. So the gospel should and must always remain the most important goal of any minister. As in Paul's case, or any elder, as in Timothy's case, or Titus's case, or any missionary like Barnabas's case, or an evangelist, or a prophet. The one goal which stands above every other possible goal is to see the gospel proclaimed in the earth, that the Holy Spirit might move the hearts of wayward sinners and cause them to believe unto repentance. Nothing can be allowed to get in the way of that, even whether or not a person's compensated for it. So in Paul and Barnabas' specific situation, it has proven more important to them because their ministry spreads so wide that they forgo their right to be paid for their labors. Why? Because there was a potential that taking advantage of that right might hinder them in some places and make their testimony not as powerful to those who were receiving it. Do you see the far-reaching implications of that mindset, Christian? Shouldn't it be the way that every redeemed believer lives their lives, that the gospel is not first and foremost just for the people in the pulpit, but that it should be first and foremost by everyone who has escaped the judgment of hell because God has lifted us up from our broken state and given us life in him. Always and ever should we be thankful for the freedoms that they, we have experienced in Christ, but always and ever should we also be mindful that those freedoms are not more important than the mission that our Lord has set us upon. The mission of the gospel, a mission that truly reveals the heart and will of the king that we serve. 
the mission that exalts Him and shines through us as ultimate priority and therefore as our own priority that nothing we say or do would hinder the name of Jesus Christ or Him being glorified. As those redeemed in Jesus, friends, we have the right to work and support ourselves, don't we? But that right is not more important than our drive to see Christ exalted. So we don't take a job that causes us to be in sin, that magnifies the darkness rather than light. There are certain industries we have no, no business being in because we're Christians. We won't accept a position that disqualifies us from regularly worshiping our Lord and Savior in the way that He has commanded us to do so. We've been saved to glorify Him, not just to establish our financial security. So that plays into every decision, even our decision about where to work. We have the right to marry because we are free in Christ, right? But by no means will we enter into that covenant with someone who does not love the Lord as we do. That would be a step in the absolute opposite direction of our whole aim and goal in life. We would be creating for ourselves a house divided and yoking our hearts to someone who has no desire to plow the same row that we are committed to plowing as worshipers of Jesus. That's got to play out in every one of our lives. The priority of Christ first in all things. We as redeemed believers, friends, have the right to be treated humanely, the right to free speech, the right to fair trial. And yet we are willing even to let those rights be put aside so long as the gospel work that is our primary calling and responsibility can continue to progress. Even if we have to do so secretly underground, even if we have to do so under the threat of financial ruin or imprisonment or even personal death. And we've been granted this amazing example up north of pastors who have not stopped, friends, who are showing us not what it means to be an all-star pastor, but to be a Christian, a normal Christian, to put Christ first no matter what. That is all of our callings. By the blood of God's Son, we've been given a birthright that is so much more important than any other right that we might lay claim to, friends. Let us never allow the temporary circumstances of this world to cause us to act in such a way that our new identity in Christ might begin to come across as anything less than the most crucial reality of our lives. In wrapping up this argument, as if what he said has not yet been enough so far, Paul drives home his claim with two more proofs. The first one is the parallel precedent of professional priesthood. And the second one is the unquestionable command of Christ. First, the precedent. And this will go fast. Even if some were to argue for a farmer or a soldier or a shepherd, that they were all unique situations and that they don't act as a perfect analogy for one reason or another to the professional minister, the most obvious and relevant comparison both to the Jewish believers and those who came from a Gentile background, should be the fact that priests, both in the temple in Jerusalem and also priests who serve at the various pagan temples there in Corinth, got their compensation from the temple itself. Their efforts were compensated by a salary that came directly from the offerings given at those temples. This makes the analogy of the oxen even more clear to us as well. Just as the plowing beast gets to benefit from whatever order of work he is doing, if, it, if it's plowing wheat, it gets to eat the wheat. If it's plowing barley, it gets to eat the barley. So too does someone involved in sacred work get to glean their compensation from what is sacred. If they are ministering to the gospel in the context of the church, then they are partaking of the church offerings. 
There is a connection between what they do and how they survive. Should it be any different from the, for the apostle, for the elder, for the missionary? No. And then in verse 14, one final appeal is made before the matter is laid to rest. And it is Paul's trump card. The Lord's unquestionable command is that those who make their living in the gospel, who proclaim the gospel, should make their living in the gospel. Now the context of this is Jesus sending out the missionaries in Matthew chapter 10. Remember, this is the first time that they're going to go out and preach the gospel apart from him. He's commissioning them. He's sending them out two by two. And he says in verse 8 of Matthew 10, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper, copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or tunics or sandals or your staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In other words, I'm sending you out. You'll be provided for when you get there. You'll preach the truth. They will give you what you need in exchange for your preaching of the truth. So in a way, Paul's defense has steadily built towards this crescendo. His argument began with reason. Common anecdotal evidence progressed through scriptural proof and then peaks here at the very spoken command of Jesus himself and after such a thorough examination, how could anyone deny that professional ministry is something not only allowable, but ordained by the Lord? And though they have the right, Paul and Barnabas voluntarily forego that freedom. Do you see the relevance of that decision in the midst of this argument? What has he just encouraged the Corinthians to do in regards to whether or not they are free to eat meat sacrificed to the idols, or to, to false idols in temples and sold in the marketplace. Are they not free to eat that meat? Yes, they're free to eat that meat. But has not he just urged them, listen, there are times when your freedom must be put aside for the sake of God's people, for the sake of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas are doing that very thing by putting aside their right to a salary so that they might not be an offense to the churches that they minister to. The gospel reigns supreme. So though Paul and Barnabas acted as an exception, it did not negate the rule. A workman is indeed worthy of his wages. There is nothing wrong with professional ministry, but we must keep first things first. If the money dries up, the gospel cannot. If the compensation is inadequate, the Lord's provision never falls short. So we trust him and we labor on. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for your grace and ask that you would continue to provide for all that we need. Help us to lift up a song of praise to you as we prepare our hearts to go out into the world, taking these principles with us. Lord, let us examine our lives and please reveal to us if there is any part of who we are that we have put before the gospel. If that is so, Lord God, we thank you for your wonderful gift of repentance, that there is not a perfection demanded of us that is unreasonable, Lord God. You know that we will fail at many of the things you call us to, but you have also made us the promise that our failures are not greater than the cross of Christ, which again and again and again overcomes our sin. So continue to keep us clean by his blood. We love you and thank you for your amazing grace and pray this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.